Thank you, Mrs. Toole. The question is asked, what can wash away my sins? And the answer is nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we glory in that truth today. If you would please take with me your copy of God's Word, the Bible, and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Earlier, just this morning in our service, we sang hymn number 443, Under His Wings. And as we sang, we sang, Under His Wings, oh, what precious enjoyment. There will I hide till life's trials are o'er. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I am safe evermore. Now look with me at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where it says this, Jesus is speaking just before he ascends to heaven and he declares, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be martyrs unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. We will receive the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will come upon us. We will receive power, authoritative power, to be martyrs. And you might be saying, wait a minute, I'm following along, pastor, and I didn't see that word martyr. You're right, because I didn't translate the Greek word. I just used the Greek word. In the Greek, the word here translated witness or witnesses, in the Greek is the word martyrus, martyrs. And Jesus is declaring to his disciples, declaring to his saints that you're going to receive power. That's exciting, right? You know, Putin thinks he's got a lot of power right now, both in power of strength and power and authority. A lot of us sometimes think we've got a lot of power. Well, here is power delegated from on high, from the creator of all things. I mean, uh, this, is, this is authoritative power, so it's not just strength and might. This is actually having the right to use it. Sometimes powerful people confuse the two. This is not just power, but power that is authoritative. And it's after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. We as Christians, as saints, and on this time, it was only 10 days later that the Holy Spirit came upon them when the Christians were indwelt by the Spirit of God, those believers, on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus says that you're going to have this power and authority you're going to have the Holy Ghost for a purpose so you can be martyrs. So you can be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem where they were at and all Judea, the region around. It would be like South Bend and Michiana. And in Samaria, the states of Indiana and Michigan paralleled and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Called to be martyrs. In fact, not just called, commanded to be. 
We turn the page, and indeed, in chapter 2, ten days later on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came upon them. Peter began to preach in Jerusalem, and many, in fact, that first day, 3,000 of Jerusalem were added unto the church. And we find at the end of chapter 2, the these believers, baptized believers, continuing, verse 42, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. We see in chapter 3, Peter going into the temple and healing a man. And then we find in chapter 4 that there's some people not too happy about these witnesses. And we find the first persecution as the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, arrest these witnesses, bring them before them, and sternly and strictly command them that they ought not to speak in the name of Jesus and whom they are to be witnesses of at all. Among this group is the apostle Peter. He's the same guy who preached the sermon on Pentecost. Peter, in processing all of this information and in dealing with these situations and all of these commands, you know what it resulted in? A boldness. A boldness on the part of Peter and John and the others as they stood firm, not in their own strength, power, or authority, but in the power and authority they received by the Holy Ghost. Well, being strictly commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, what do you think Peter went and did? He had authority. He had authority far higher, far greater than these people. And he went forth upon the authority he had received from Jesus himself, the creator of all things, the risen Lord. And he continued to preach Jesus. That didn't go over very well, because as we keep on going and time goes by, we find in chapter 5 and verse 17 that it became a bigger complication and they brought these men in and they imprisoned them, among them being Peter, Peter among them. And they sternly again tell them that they are not to preach in the name of Christ. This time they are beating them. Their lives are spared because a wise man among them, even though an unbeliever, appeals to their logic of the faultiness of their logic. But nonetheless, in chapter 5 and verse 40, they agreed to Gamaliel, the wise man, and when they had called the apostles and had beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And you might be scratching your head and saying, wait a minute, they have all authority. Why are they getting beaten? That's strange. Well, what did they do? Verse 41, they departed from the presence of the consul, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now you might be saying, that's really strange. Not only are these people who have been given authority from God of gods, the only God, being 
being, being beaten for telling people about him. But then once they're beaten, they rejoice. And what happened to that song? Um, sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I am safe evermore. Perhaps the person who wrote this song, and Ira D. Sankey who wrote the music for it, maybe they hadn't heard about Peter. Wait, I, I just sang the song. That's strange. What I'm reading about Peter doesn't sound quite like this. Why, this says, resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Uh, mm, getting beaten doesn't sound very safe. Getting beaten doesn't sound like I'm sheltered. And then they're rejoicing. This is strange. They're let go. They're released. But they keep on preaching daily. Daily, daily, daily. You see what they're doing? They're being martyrs. They're being witnesses. Witnesses of Jesus Christ. We come to chapter 6 of Acts, and the apostles there, the pastors there, realize that they can't get all the work done, especially the need of caring for widows who are neglected, and so they've called for the church to look out among themselves to appoint men of honest report over this business, deacons. And one of those deacons is very famous. His name is Stephen. And Stephen rises in prominence because he's not only one who is ministering to those who need physical, practical help, but he's one who also continues being a martyr, a witness. It really provokes the Jews in that place. And in chapter 7, he is arrested, he is confronted, he is brought into a circle of 70 men of the Sanhedrin surrounding him, and he stands in the middle of these men these are the same men that have beaten Peter, James, and Peter and John previously. These are the same men who have beaten them. And he stands before them, and he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He's not ashamed of truth. And he preaches a sermon to them. Their conscience are pricked. Their hearts are pricked. They rail on him. They gnaw on him, it says. They come on him with one accord. They attack him. They drag him out of the city of Jerusalem, and they stone him to death. And before he died, the end there of chapter 7, it's recorded that he's looking into the very throne room of heaven, full of the Holy Ghost. And he declared in chapter 7, verse 7, 57, or, or 56, I see the heavens opened and the Son of God, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He sees Jesus standing there. They wouldn't hear anything. They closed their ears. They stopped their ears. They ran on him with one accord. They stoned him, and even as he is dying, he prays, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Forgive them. And he fell asleep. Chapter 8 tells us there was one there consenting unto his death and participating in it, and his name was Saul, Saul of Tarshish. And Saul was one who began to breathe out threatenings against the church, and he went from place to place hunting Christians, does that sound sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me? Resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore? As he drug Christians out of their homes and put them into prison. Wait, this is strange. 
This is strange. These are those who, after the Holy Spirit came upon them, had all power, right? What's going on? Saul continues his persecution of the church. And it's unbelievable because in the midst of all of this, as persecution is spreading, we in chapter 8 and verse 8 see that there was great joy in that city. Hunted like animals, and there is great joy in that city. We turn to chapter 9, and we read in the very first verses, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and he desires of him authority. <laughs> authority to continue hunting Jews, not just Jews, not Jews, Christians, even outside of Jerusalem and further beyond. See here the, the dichotomy. The believers, the Christians, have been granted authority from on high to be witnesses, to be martyrs of Jesus Christ. Authority from the highest authority there is possible. And here now Saul, in breathing out his threatenings, he gains authority to hunt them. Well, I hate to skip it, but we're going to skip it in our survey. What happens in chapter 9 is that Saul meets Jesus. Saul gets saved. And Saul becomes a new man, a new creature in Christ Jesus. As we continue on, we find the gospel has continued now to Samaria, and now it's beginning to go to the uttermost parts of the world. As in chapter 10, we find out through that God used Peter and a vision to Peter that the gospel go to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And as we keep on reading... Peter is in Jerusalem, and it tells us in chapter 12 and verse 1 that Herod finds James, the brother of John, one of the pastors, one of the apostles, and Herod executes him with the sword. Wait a minute. Jesus said you'll receive all power once the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be martyrs unto me everywhere witnesses well how can one who's this martyr die now you guys always all might be thinking wait a minute that's what a martyr is no it's not what a martyr is in the original meaning of the word the word martyr means a witness it means a witness that's what the word means a witness and we have come to associate it with those who die for a cause. See, the emphasis isn't really upon the death. Ultimately, the emphasis is upon the cause. What's the cause? Here for these. Here for these, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus died for me, died for you. You believe in Jesus, you can have everlasting life. James was a preacher of the gospel. And Herod, vexing the church, had him executed. And I ask you again for the song we just sang. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I am safe evermore. But what about Stephen? What about James? And you know what's really sad now? James is killed. And Herod notices that it makes a lot of people happy. Again, 
Herod thinks he's got all authority and power. So realizing that this now makes people happy, he decides he's going to arrest Peter. So Peter, the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, is arrested. He's put into prison. Times go, time goes by. And Herod decides that he is going to execute Peter just like he executed James. He's going to flex his power. And he's going to kill Peter. Chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, verse 4. And when Herod had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, that means the night before Herod was scheduled to bring him forth, and by the way, bring him forth to the people was to execute him. Everybody knew this. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now, I got two questions. It's strange that Peter, the one who professed the great confession that Jesus is the Son of God and upon him the church will be built. Peter, this apostle, who, upon whom all authority has been given to be martyr. is now facing death the next day. The next morning, facing death. That's strange. That doesn't seem like it makes sense that one who has all authority, all power, would be facing death the next day. And you know what else doesn't make sense? He's sleeping. Wait a minute, Peter. You ought to be fretting. but he's sleeping. You know why? Because Peter believed the words of the song we sang. He believed under his wings, oh, what precious enjoyment. He believed there will I hide till life's trials are o'er. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus I'm safe evermore. And that's why he was able to that day, in anticipation of his execution, illegitimate execution, could be sleeping. Peter survived that next day. For in that night, as he was sleeping, he had to be rudely awoken. You have been rudely awoken? Well, I imagine that you wouldn't think it was so rude if you were in prison about to be executed and an angel woke you up and delivered you out of that prison. Peter was delivered from that prison, brought to the assembly of Christians praying for him. It seemed they didn't believe it. How often are we of the same way? And that night he was delivered. And what's interesting is that within a very short period of time, that Herod, who thought he had all power, himself died. 
And time has gone by. 30 years have gone by. Paul's missionary journeys have spread across the world, the gospel. Not just Paul, but many others like him. Peter himself has found him in different places. The end of 1 Peter talks about Peter being in Babylon. Some question whether or not that's the literal Babylon or the figurative Babylon of Rome. Either way, Paul, Peter also made it around. This book, we believe, was written in A.D. 65. To remind you of what we've studied before, in A.D. 64 is when Rome was burned. And Emperor Nero declared that the fault of that lie with the Christians. These Christos followers. These little Christs. And so Christianity became declared illegal throughout the entire Roman Empire, which began an incredibly severe persecution of Christians. Christians were taken, drugged from their homes, tied to posts, covered in tar, and lit to burn as lampposts. They were fed to wild beasts in arenas for the entertainment of spectators. They were stripped of their clothing and of any weapons and were put into arenas to be hunted by elementary gladiators. The horror of horrors that we read of the persecutions under Nero are horrific. And the rumors of this, the news of this, spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire, including Asia Minor. And in the following year, Peter writes this letter. A man who stood there with Jesus just before Jesus ascended up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, and, and just before he takes that position of power and authority, he said to Peter, you'll receive all power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And Peter has over the years now been a martyr. He has been a witness over and over and over and over, and he has repeatedly suffered. He has been beaten he has been put in jail. His life has been threatened, and he has been delivered repeatedly. And now the threat of this persecution becomes empire-wide. Now imagine you're sitting there in Ephesus or Bithynia, a city there in Bithynia, and this letter from Peter shows up. And you read in chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, now if you've been following with me in 1 Peter, you know that when Peter uses that word, brace yourself. He's going to share something that's really hard. He starts by saying, beloved, beloved, did you know you are beloved? God loves you. And no matter what threatens you, no matter what fears come, no matter what experiences you've had or are enduring, you're loved. And Peter reminds them of that truth as he transitions here in dealing with a very relevant issue. 
I say a very relevant issue, and it's interesting because is it relevant here? What am I talking of? Christian persecution. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, those who persecute you, is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. We read fiery trials, and perhaps we have nothing evoked in our mental image. These people had a very graphic image in their minds of what that meant. And not just a graphic image because they had, well, they didn't even have newspapers to see it, pictures of it. No, they had seen it on the streets of Ephesus. They'd seen it on the streets of Iconium and in Lystra. Some of them had been their own family members. Perhaps even themselves sat there. Not in a comfortable place like this, but in hiding and couldn't even sit because of the pain of the wounds they had received from the scourgings and the beatings. And they read this. Beloved, oh, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. You see, over and over, I've been saying so far in this sermon, that's strange, that's strange, that's strange. Yeah, forget all those comments. Peter says it's not strange. In fact, over in the letter written to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul wrote, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not strange. In fact, if we were to turn just a few pages back to the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, wherefore, what that means is consider what we've just read afore, before in chapter 11 of the others who suffered and were afflicted and destitute and tormented for their faith. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of martyrs. Again, I'm reading the Greek word, not the English word. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of martyrs, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, 
And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. We're running a race and think it not strain concerning the fiery trial that is to try you because the author and the finisher of your faith, the one in whom your faith is, I hope. If it's not, you're not a Christian. He, too, suffered. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended and he is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. Put your focus there. And when you're focused there, then you can sing under his wings. In fact, we found over and over this joy, which is the next part here. The next part says in here in 1 Peter chapter 4, but rejoice. So we're not to think it strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try us, but rejoice. Well, we're not to think it strange. Well, part of the reason we're not to think as strange as partly because of things Jesus had told us. Jesus had told us, in fact, as he was carrying his cross up that hill, he came to some women and he told them, if they've done this to me, how much more will they do it in a season when I'm not here? It's a paraphrase. He used an analogy of a green tree and a dry tree, but, but the point of it was is that here they're doing this to me, the creator of all. What will they do when I'm not here? You see, it, it's, it's no strange thing. In fact, everything about this is exactly opposite of our human perspective. We look at persecution of Christians, little Christs, and we say, that's strange. And Peter says, no, it's not. And then Peter says, but rejoice. And we're like, no, 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 no. This, Peter, this doesn't make any sense. But it does. In fact, it's not unique to Peter. It is an experience that has been true throughout the Christian world. And in fact, throughout Christian teaching. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 18, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. This is nothing new. This is nothing strange. In that same chapter, Jesus continued saying, remember the, the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. There's some hope of witness here. There's going to be some fruit, but yet you'll, you'll face persecution. But then Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
really, Jesus? They're blessed? No, no, when I think of somebody blessed, I think of that they got a big house, they got lots of money, they don't have trouble, they don't have distress, they have good health. That's, that's blessed. But Jesus says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed. He continues by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He continues, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Huh? Blessed again. Do you know what Jesus continues to say in, in Matthew 5, 12? Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Don't think it's strange. In fact, you're blessed in the fiery trials, and thereby you can rejoice because your reward is great. This is why in Acts, over and over, it speaks of them rejoicing. Rejoicing. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when, when God told him that his grace was sufficient and he was struggling with, with some things. God said, my grace is sufficient. My, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know how Paul responded? He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, Paul writes, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you see it? He says, I'll take pleasure in this. I have a whole list of additional scriptures that continue to go on and on and on and on, telling us that when tried, when persecuted, rejoice, and examples of it being done. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, oh beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, insomuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, his coming back, his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Do we rejoice in him? Lord God, we need your help. Help us to understand your word. Teach us, teach us, dear Father, May in this life, no matter what we face or deal with, Lord, may we keep our eyes fixed on you and trust you. We need you. Fill us with your spirit and your joy and your peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.